depression at like a lost buddy. The dryer was off, like having sex with the washing machine's spouse. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you can never trust a washing machine. I mean, so many people have dumped loads in it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Was the red light on? Was the red light on? (laughs) Yeah, we got that. Yay. (laughs) Welcome, everybody, to the Modern Dandies Guide to Manliness. I uh, I am so excited for this episode. We have been uh, bantering about, uh, all of us, uh, about random topics. But we realized we had never quite done an origin story. We had not uh, really properly introduced ourselves to you, the, the lovely listening audience. Uh, and uh, we wanted to start off a series that we're, we're calling Who's Your Dandy? And uh, because, frankly, I'm in love with his voice, we're going to start with Mudcat. And so today's episode is going to be Getting to Know Your Dandy, Mudcat edition. Now, your voice is uh, quite prominent, the accent uh, about as much as Liam's is. But unlike Liam, you are not from Tasmania. Where are you uh, born and raised, sir. I grew up in Mississippi, uh, northeast Mississippi, north of a town called Tupelo, kind of out, yeah, in the hinterland. Um, spent a bunch of time on the Gulf Coast and picked up a little bit of that accent. Uh, my grandparents were from Louisiana, so I've got this, you know, fantastic Southern hodgepodge of an accent. It's quite wonderful. And so what was that like? So, you know, uh, you have mentioned in past episodes uh, about a tiny bit of the college experience and, you know, setting goals for yourself. But if we could go go a little bit further back, what was it like growing up? I mean, did you have room to run around in? Were you oh, yeah. rural? Were you city? Was it what was that like? So first of all, I, I think more than any of the other dandies, um, I've got a relatively you know solid Google presence. If you want to know about me, you can go look <laughs> it up. Um, so fuck your interview. Um, the, <laughs> you know, it's it, because of my public work as a political consultant, I'm quoted in the papers and this is not the only public part of my life. What was it like being a kid? Um, I was a kid in a rural town. Uh, my, we lived, uh, my dad had 16 acres, uh, out of a 36 acre plot. I think that we shared with two aunts and uncles and he was a superintendent and then a vice president for a construction company when I was a kid. So like we had, you know, sheds and barns and there were welders and, and pipes and sheet metal and like wrenches and things. And that was great stuff to play with. Um, yeah. We were seven miles from the closest gas station. I was half a mile. I think Ashley Jackson was the closest person who lived to me, and she was a mile away, uh, as who was like, you know, a member of my, my class in school. The closest thing you could call a friend. So my brothers and sister my, are 15, 16 years older than me. I've got nieces and nephews that are my age. Yeah. My niece has a seven year old. I'm a grand uncle. Um, And (laughs) that is mostly just the effect of Mississippi genealogy. 
Yeah, I mean, I was a bookish kid. I played a lot of video games. Uh, yeah, we read a lot. Uh, my brother and sister both went to college. They were first-generation college students. Uh, my parents come from poverty. Um, my f- mother grew up on a share crop farm. Um, hmm. Yeah, they worked on... They picked cotton for the wealthy landowner. And, you know, it was company store, whole bit, right? Um, then her dad died when she was 14. And, you know, it was it was she and her mother and two sisters that was left. They, she had a b- bunch of brothers and sisters. Um, there were, I think, eight of them originally. I'm going to get in trouble for missing that later. Um Uh, there was one who died and then my aunt owner sue my aunt neva hale my uncle roy wade prentice warren tony carroll and then harmy nail and lucy dale the man got to be roy wade and tony carroll and prentice warren and the women were owner sue and neva hale and harmy nail like it was yeah those kind of names and there was one that died uh, when she was really young, like way, way before I was born. Um, I think of a spider bite. And they were all gone except for Tony, who had polio, and Harmy and Lucy, who was my mother. And they worked the crop farm with Nail to get by until my mom could get out. Yeah, she had a lot of complicated feelings about all of that. Uh, my, my consistent distrust of rich people to this day is, is basically inherited <laughs> um, in pretensions to class Justified, and status. So. Right. Like yeah, I absolutely come to the world with the view of um, if my shit is fancy enough, you cannot fuck with me or my people. All right. Like you can make yourself look economically large enough to avoid confrontation. My dad is still living. My mom died 10 years ago. My dad, 78 years old, his father died when he was 13 or 15. And he also had a string of brothers, all brothers, all boys, um, Ed and Bill and Cecil and Tom and Jerry. It was not a crop farming situation, but it was real close. Um, Their dad died. And about six months later, my dad was the second oldest of the bunch. Um, about six months later, my grandmother married a different man who moved her to Arkansas and did not want to bring her children. So they came home one day and the furniture and the food was gone. She just left, took all the shit. He did not cry when she died. So, yeah, that informed a lot of it. Um, Hmm. Yeah, my parents. My mom had gone to nursing school. My dad had done a couple of tours in Vietnam, and he got drafted, um, but he was pretty good at soldiering, so he stuck around with it. My mom went to, to nursing school, got an RN degree, was a great nurse. She was the person who, yeah, all over the county, people brought their kid, their sick kids. If you couldn't afford to go to the doctor, you came to see Lucy. She was really good at it. He went to the community college for a little bit, studied auto mechanics. I mean, the man's got 
a first-rate mind. My father, by any question of intellect, is if he had not been, you know, born to poor people in Tishomingo County, Mississippi, uh, he would have been one of the leading minds of his generation. I mean, we had things in our house that he built. We had a back porch, um, just like a wooden deck that we couldn't. We, the kids wouldn't keep the doors closed on the deck. We couldn't close the gate. Uh, so he built a self-weighted system that closed all the doors behind us on the outside <laughs> gate. When I was in first grade, uh, they put in a swimming pool and he built a fence around the swimming pool. And, you know, they were scared about kids getting into the pool, whatever, you know, like I'm in first grade. So he put a lock on the swimming pool gate that was a logic puzzle. If you pushed it too high, it wouldn't open. It was, it was just a bar is set in a metal face. If you pushed it too high, it wouldn't open. If you tried to pull on it too hard, it wouldn't open. If you tried to push it too low, it wouldn't open. But if you put it in the middle and pulled with the right amount of force, you could go swimming. And that's yeah, that's you know the world and the place in which I grew up. My dad was on the road a lot, usually three weeks a month. Um, was his kind of standard deal. Uh, that left me and my mom home. My brother was home for a little while. And then he went to work with my dad after he went to school. Um, but when I was a small child, we, there were two adults in college in the house, right? My sister is still a high school English teacher. Um, she named the three little pigs, Byron, Shelley, and Keats. And, you know, I still tell that story to this day. Um, <laughs> not that she named them, but the actual story, adventures of the three little pigs about Byron, Shelley, and Keats. Yeah, I was a bookish kid. I played a lot of video games. Um, I had two best friends who were like way blonder and prettier and cooler than me. And my mom liked them a lot. And we all basically kind of lived together until, well, well into to middle school and high school. Early, well, it, it feels early to me. I don't know how it feels like to other people. So by the time I was in first or second grade, my mom was petitioning pretty regularly for gifted programming or at least gifted testing in our school system. And I went to Marietta elementary school. Uh, I think they got 160 kids today. Um, there were 17 kids in my class when I was there. Yeah. We're talking about a rural place. So my mom went and petitioned for uh, a gifted program and me and a couple other kids got into the program and that just kind of like got me marked by the county early about like, this is a person who, you know, has capacity. There's a brother that's got capacity. So I never really wanted for anything in an educational environment. When I was having trouble learning my multiplication tables, somebody spent $20 on a computer game and gave me my homeroom time so that I could go to the school library and work on the computer game to learn to master multiplication tables in middle school. I uh, started band. They put me on a saxophone and I took to it like a duck to water. Spent, I guess, the next 12 years, 10 years, somewhere in there, training to be a classical musician. And I went to conservatory. It just so turned out that one of the top saxophone studios in the world was a state school in Mississippi. The University of Southern Mississippi has a conservatory program that turns out a bunch of world-class musicians. Uh, I went there, did that for a minute, 
you know, because of the music thing, like I was, I spent a lot of time out of school and traveling for all state bands and youth orchestras and all sorts of stuff. So like my high school experience was not centered in the place where I lived. You know, there was always like sort of you're out on the first train. The question is just where does that train going? And it went to University of Southern Mississippi. I did the music school thing there and realized at one point that I just wasn't as good as everybody else. There were probably 40 people in the studio of the people today, like folks I'm still Facebook friends with. A bunch of them are published composers. Several are uh, members of the military bands. Lots of professors. I would say there's probably of the 40, probably six are tenured track performance instructors or composers, music history professors. They were all really, really good. There's two or three of those guys who are like touring Europe, wearing tuxedos every night, playing with orchestras. And that was just not going to happen for me. And if the option was be a band director or do something else, I was going to do something else. Um, Because I love my high school band directors um, or my, my high school band director, Bobby Patrick. But that was just like I was not going to only have that much money. Being a public school teacher, living on that salary was not for me. So the kids who were doing Amnesty International were have were in my dorm, and they were having a shit ton of fun. Like, those guys were having a blast. So when I realized I wasn't going to be a musician, I started doing what they were doing. Ended up in political science department. Um, I have this history of running into teachers Right before they become famous, I had a, a political science professor who it was his first year. That was the year that I went into the political science program who ended up being a Fulbright scholar. Like he had just finished his PhD uh, after having worked in Africa and NGOs and reporting for a lot of years, uh, decided he was going to be a professor as sort of a retirement gig um, and is now one of the, you know, foremost scholars on uh, conflict resolution in international relations. Yeah, I have this habit of running into people who later, you know, go on to do great things, getting the advantage of a whole lot of extraordinary wisdom. I just, I'm, I'm listening and my, my jaws on the floor somewhere. I have to find it. That's incredible. I uh, am hearing so much uh, depth to this story um a couple of quick questions uh, do you still play the sax uh, i haven't met i have the one that i bought which was not the one that i had used in my glory days uh but the one that i used at conservatory it's actually on the wall here uh-huh. in the kitchen um <laughs> you've seen it it's a 1928 yep. busher aristocrat it's art now like the idea that this fantastic instrument is functionally just like a sculpture piece in a rich dude's house um, sometimes bothers me, <laughs> but uh, I'll tell you the story. So at the conservatory, they throughout the 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 child musician circuit is not unlike like the prodigious athlete circuit. You know, there's camps, there's clinics, there's competitions on the weekends. Yeah, there's like a scene around it. I've never, I never did any of that because I was never athletic ever. I was the slowest kid in my class, being six inches taller than everybody else. But 
you know, David Foster Wallace told me a lot about it. I kind of think, think I have a, a feel for what like that elite athlete kid thing is like. And the music thing was real similar. And on that circuit, the folks at Southern Miss were legendary. One, the guy who popularized the classical saxophone was the the teacher of the guy who I, I think just retired from Southern Miss. And they were really into ancient instruments. They had a, a very specific idea about the way the saxophone should be performed. And that was only, you know, you weren't doing it right until, you know, you had one of these ancient things. And I, and I say ancient, it was ancient when they bought them, like the company that they, the, the specific model that they like went out of business in the 40s, right? So, it, you know, in the, in the early 2000s, you're like trying to cobble together these instruments. And it was like a really like, how am I going to figure this the fuck out? Because I had a job uh, at the one hour photo shoot up studio uh, working for Jan Houck, who I still love to this day. But like, I think I was making... If, if minimum wage was five fifteen, I think I was making six bucks, uh, working eight or 12 hours a week. Right. Like I never had any fucking money. Yeah. It was like a real scramble. Like, how am I going to get this together to, to get the instrument? Once I'd gotten into school, high school graduation came around and my mom sent out all the invitations and, and did all of that work. And basically like four little old ladies from my church or from the church that my mom went to, I shouldn't call it mine. I don't have any claim to it basically cobbled together the money and gave me the money as a graduation gift to get the instrument. It may be art on a rich dude's wall, but I know where it came from. That's right. There's a story. Liam, I know that you wanted to ask a follow-up. Yeah. So, so really what my question was you know, to Mudcat is that you know, he and I have been talking about how to engage men uh, in a discussion about you know, what, it means to be a man and be successful for some town. So how how did he get from those beginnings to you know, where we are now as the modern dandies? It, my brother and sister and I talk about this a lot. Um, you know, they're in their 50s now, and I am not. Yes, you are. Yeah, we grew up in different houses, right? Like their dad was a welder like a journeyman work a week welder. And my dad was a superintendent for a construction company who, you know, got performance bonuses. And, you know, in, uh, I think today the average income where I grew up, um, is something about $18,000 per person per annum. And my dad made real money, right? I mean, $80,000, $130,000 years were kind of the standard when I was in middle school and high school. Um, mama drove Cadillac. Mama worked when she wanted to and didn't work when she didn't want to. By the time I was in middle school and high school, we got a, he got hooked up. I think it was 91 Mississippi legalized gaming. He ended up eventually be, being promoted to an equity stake where he was getting a bunch of stock options and stuff. And the company that built almost all of the casinos in Mississippi I, I think there were in the original Tunica development, I think there were 17 and we built 11. So like I said, mama rode a Cadillac. We were not poor. Yes. Um, but there's like a totally different sensation of one shit. Money hadn't even been invented as far as they know before, like, you know, 1988. 
um, because they'd never seen any of it. You know, like how do what happens when you come into money for the first time? They did that part. Um, you know, my brother grew up in a house. They, they were on a job in Oklahoma City in the late seventies, and my brother, he was, I think he was twelve, and his bicycle got stolen, and they couldn't get the money together to replace the kid's bike for like three months. Right, like they were broke. My mama rode a Cadillac. They didn't have a bicycle, so my brother and sister and I came from real different financial situations. Now, I didn't know a lot of other people who had any money, and we we didn't have wealth the way the way I understand wealth now. And there was certainly no attitude about it. Like there's this whole cultural thing about how people with money act and the things they do and the things you buy. And no, we were the spend it right in my life up until, you know, probably the last five or seven years I have been a spend it. Yeah. I was just lucky that for a long time, I kind of like made more money than I could spend. Not common for somebody of my generation, the just extraordinary, levels of of luck and privilege and a bunch of other shit uh i just kind of have to be in awe of so i would say and this is something actually that liam and i have talked about for years now is like there's a difference in money and class how to have class and and to think the way that people who have generational experience handling money do and having the same set of facts that they do uh, has been, I, I think I've mastered it, but only very recently. It's not an easy oh, no, thing. I'm just also like, I'm fucking bad at it. Like I got, I got poor <laughs> impulse control and bipolar disorder. Like, uh, you know, like shit just comes off me. <laughs> you have this, this classical training with music and then which transferred into political science I met you while you were living in San Francisco. What were you? I met you uh, in in these early days. I feel like I don't know if you were interning on a campaign or what. I was a national campaign manager for a three million dollar independent expenditure effort when I was living in San Francisco. Um, Yeah, I was twenty eight, kicking a buck thirty. About this, so tell me. Uh, so that the campaign drew you to yeah. San Francisco. So when you're a you campaign hack, you move around a bunch. I've lived in probably 17 states, and when I say live there, I mean like gotten mail, gone to the dry cleaners, and had a favorite pizza shop. When I was in college, I started working races. When I was in middle school, I had known my state senator because he was my local optometrist, and I paged for him in the state senate. Um, when I was small, uh, probably maybe 14, he called me and said, Hey, the governor's running for reelection. They need somebody in your town. I told him I'd send them some help. And I went and they put me to work in the office. Two, three weeks later, they offered me 500 bucks to run the office. And you do that and you got, I got to meet the governor and the mayor and a bunch of people. And then the mayor had me run his city council candidates and you meet some consultants, you meet some guys and yeah, you're by next thing, you know, you're while I was, while I was in school, I was kind of bopping around the Gulf coast from new Orleans to Pensacola working races. Um, 
mostly like paid canvas stuff. Not a big deal. One time I got to be a communications director. I wrote six press releases and two stump speeches. Then uh, I tried to go to law school. Um, that was my dad's still pissed about this. I was at the end of college and it was kind of like, well, what the fuck are you going to do? And uh, I failed the mental health screen to go to the Peace Corps. I wanted to go to the Peace Corps. I wanted to go to Vanuatu. Which they were sending me to the South Pacific. They were like, have you ever taken drugs like, it, it, you know, prescriptions? Have you ever taken anxiety medication? And I was like, yes. And then I had to do a six-week psychiatric evaluation with a university official or somebody in the university counseling system who was a, an addiction specialist. And, you know, after, after my six sessions, I got this, you know, fantastic diagnosis uh, of, of my addictions. And I didn't get to go to the Peace Corps. In retrospect, that's funny as fuck. When did you when did you really start to realize that this conversation about manliness was not only important but something you thought that you were actually really keen to to promote and, so, and contribute to? Hey, I want to say the thing that like the moment where I was like fuck everybody was uh, the San Bernardino shooting. Um, somewhere between San Bernardino and Columbia, South Carolina, the ones where you start to see like real outright misogynistic and racist motivations for, you know, killing lots of people. Yeah. You know, the, I think it's the San Bernardino one is the one where the, or Santa Barbara, where Santa Barbara, you see yeah. Santa Barbara, where, Dude kills a girl because she wouldn't sleep with him or wouldn't date him. What the hell ever he thought he was up to. That was, that was one where it was like, okay, something's really wrong here. And then I actually started, like I got curious about this and yeah, people told me, I think it was Melissa Ryan who was like, there is an origin point for all of this. And it starts in 4chan. Then going down the rabbit holes in the darker parts of Reddit and 4chan. Um, and you discover that there's essentially like a template for shootings. These things are, are regular planned and predictable because it's a, there, there are communities who produce shooters. Yeah, I really started. And this is the first conversation you and I had about this was about trying to culture Jack this. So I guess this would have been 2015, 2016. I was definitely at the old apartment. Hmm. Yeah, like how do you culture jacket? How do you speak the language that they use and how do you, you know, kind of build the tools that they recognize and and slip a, a feminist perspective into the world? I've had a whole bunch of feelings about this. It, feelings, analysis, reading it, thought, thinking about it different ways. The first theory was that you know, essentially, this was just like a bunch of dudes who didn't know how to get laid. Like, they didn't know how to date women or talk to women. They didn't know how to present themselves for public consumption. And, like, maybe if somebody just helped them out with that, maybe they wouldn't want to kill people. I've, I've since moved away. But not, not, not going down the Jordan Peterson route of trying to come up with yet another book of rules that is 
essentially, you know, how to you know, reinstitute the 1950s and, and all that yeah, kind of crap. I mean, my first um, shot at this, the first thing we actually talked about was haircuts that fit your head shape, how to do a grooming <laughs> routine, you know, like how to do face wash. Right. And sort of like breaking that mm. down to something that, you know, a 15 year old kid in Mississippi can afford on his $6 an hour salary. Like that was, that was where I thought this conversation was. And the longer I live and the deeper this goes, the further that is from the answer. One of the things that you and I have always struggled with, and I think we're both empathic. We come from pretty disrupted, non-traditional backgrounds, and we got to where we were going by a combination of luck and grit, is trying to build that kind of empathic understanding of what these people are thinking about. But when did it become a passion point for you? I, I completely well, understand. I mean, the, the, the Santa Barbara... And, and the whole men's rights activism and so forth is, and toxic masculinity is, is just, it, it just seemed to snowball to a point where enough was enough. But where, where was your point that you went, I'm going to stand up and do something about it? Hey, the, obli- the thing that I was told, you know, your, your Uncle Ben speech, it was, if you know the answer, you have the obligation to say the answer. And, you know, the idea that I like sat in this for a little while and was like, oh, maybe if there was a pickup guide that wasn't trash, right? Like, <laughs> like I had an idea. Okay. Now I have an obligation to go check this out, right? Like, you know, the answer you have to go tell somebody. And I think to what we're doing, as we talked about, is it a book? But a book won't compete with Reddit. And, it doesn't compete with with the easy answers and the snake oil salesman that it's selling this this inclusivity in a in a group creating a community of at least a community of thought where it's not where it's acceptable to do the right thing rather than feel pressured into doing something you know is wrong and and I think that's that's the thing that I think you and I have been been struggling with, and 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 over the last six years, to work out how to articulate that and, and engage people. And I mean, both of us, I think, on an individual basis, are good at engaging people. I think in in your case, well, you 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 come from, I mean, your background is is such that that I think that that empathy is is real. So you you understand a wealth of where this if mindset for a begins. couple of extraordinary teachers. I may have been the asshole who shot up in the church in Columbia. I mean, it wasn't going to go well, that I far. Mean, it's, but. <laughs> statistically speaking, I am, you know, the Southern white male stereotype, right? There's mm-hmm. no reason for me to be, you know, big old liberal street fighter. And so, where do you see this going? What you're doing now? This is this is kind of a, this has kind of become a bit of a mission. You know, this is a, this is something that we are all doing together as a as a shared experience, a shared mission. For you, 
it's if, in terms of getting to know you is like where where would you where do you want I mean, to see it go? I want to get I want to fuck up the MRA dudes. <laughs> like I mean, if you want to put a point on it, the dragging conversations from fashion film movies all of the places where you know the the, the population gets their their thinkies yeah we got to confront the fact that there's a market for homophobia racism and misogyny and yeah hate either eliminate the market or the marketers the the direct confrontation with you know the MRA and the incel assholes I, I would like for every time that Time Magazine writes a story about the incel movement, they have to write about us. They have to write about some counter force that says that those people are dumb fucks. And that there's better ways of, there's better ways of, sure. more successful ways of approaching life. One thing you said earlier that I think was, was really interesting was that you wanted to, to get to a point where you were, economically large enough to avoid confrontation. How much do you see that as playing into being able to confidently assert yourselves? And I completely agree with you in your, in your utter distrust of rich people and, and their motivations and activities. But I just thought that was a really interesting statement. I thought it'd be really good if you could just elaborate on that in how you see yeah, that my as mother empowering never felt yourself. powerful a day in her life. You know, despite all the things that she and my father achieved, you know, they had multiple homes, rental properties. They sent their kids to school. They, like I said, mom rode a Cadillac. But when she was in poverty, she was not afforded her dignity in any way. She assumed that was because she was poor. Maybe she was hanging around a bunch of assholes. I don't know. I wasn't there. It was the forties. That's very much something I've inherited is that the only way for, for you and the people around you to, to, to keep your dignity is to be too strong, you know, too strong, too pretty, too smart, whatever, too rich for other people to fuck with you. And yeah, I mean, money is the last and best way to do that. Do you still feel that you're battling that? Do you feel that in other parts of your life, you're, you're still having that, that kind of battle uh, with the classism of the, the, um, I mean, I got a difference in finance. Like, I, I have so many suits and they are custom made that I get to make jokes, right? Like my suits are named after ZZ top songs. You don't get to do that. You don't get to make that joke without, you know, a comic level of comfort. And, you know, they really are. And they're beautiful oh, suits, I love those by suits. the way. They, oh, I'm bad. I'm nationwide. <laughs> Gets compliments every time I walk outside. Hey, yeah, are some of these three-generation ghosts? Yes. Am I fighting my mother's battle? Yeah. She been dead a long time? Yeah. And, you know, maybe even my dad or my brother and sister may not have taken that lesson from her the way I did. You know, I've just got like this street fight thing. Like I'm waking up to fuck with somebody every day. Yeah, man. Like I got like a private club membership and a BMW and suits with my name in them and shit. Like I got thousand dollar watches. I ain't got five thousand or twenty thousand dollar watches, so I still got ambitions. 
uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to catch up with some of Liam shit. <laughs> right. We, that's why we're all here. No, <laughs> what, does, uh, what, what does, you know, the, the 12, the 13, what does that, that young teenage mudcat think of, of you today? Uh, Are you, is that, is that younger version of yourself excited? Is he upset? Well, how do you think that? I mean, that it's like I said, man, from, I'm bipolar. Like, uh, I, like, I got this whole thing. Um, so, you know, which version at which level of health on which day? Like, my past is not a consistent place. Fair point. Fair point. Let me ask it a different way then. Uh, probably same answer, I suppose. But how do you feel about today uh, going into tomorrow? Like, are you happy with the strides that you're making? Um, are you yeah. confident I mean, in the direction you're I've going? I've got a gig I like. I've got What's a client level? Book yeah. that is coming together. I, you know, I got this mortgage on this house that I like. I got a fiance who is extraordinary. Oh my god, we can congratulate you now. We 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 can. We also got to repost We've, the earlier one. I told uh, Maggie about the uh, the the promo image for the episode with the ring, <laughs> and she <laughs> fell off her chair laughing and has given us the blessing to be able to use that that uh, that particular text chat as the uh, as the uh, as the marketing uh, for that episode. <laughs> um, and, and, and yeah, Maggie oh, yeah. is remarkable and and remarkably tolerant. Uh, so, so <laughs> Mudcat and I are both blessed. Well, they with, like uh, with our ladies, and that, that goes a long way, right? Like they I just hang they out are, with each yeah. other and ignore us. Yeah, they, they do. This happened actually <laughs> last night. So it's been gnawing at me for about forty minutes. If the three little pigs are called Byron, <laughs> Shelley, and Keats, what's the wolf's name? Well, uh, as of Friday <laughs> night, actually. Uh, we just, you know, new inventions in canon after watching the Tarantino movie. The new name. Uh, as, a, as a child, he was the big bad wolf. Um, uh, yeah. As of Friday night, um, he is hereby referred to as Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, Shelley being responsible for their own destruction. Wow, okay. Absolutely. I mean, if, if we're going to the house of yeah. straw, the house of wood, and the house of brick. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, you know. I want to thank both of you for sharing so much. And um, we had a bit of, I'll just openly admit, we had a bit of technical difficulty. If you were wondering why Liam wasn't talking earlier on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one, Mudcat's story was incredible. Yes. <laughs> and I wasn't actually trying to interject a lot. It's just that I then came to the point of well, actually wanting to possible. ask a question and found that, yeah. that, uh, that Mudcat couldn't hear me. But Mudcat, you, you, you shared so much with me. I'm, I'm so thrilled to know so much more about you. I know that you dress well. I know that you drink well. I know that you have smarts and imagination that run so deep, but to kind of hear where this all comes from and what drives you is just, just really incredible. I really uh, only have two additional questions for you. What are you wearing? Mountain. And what are you drinking? Uh, <laughs> What pizza are That's you eating? That's pizza. The double party box. <laughs> Cheese sticks and pepperoni pizza in the same box. Um, yeah, uh, I've got my black Armani trunks, uh, gray Kenneth Cole polo, and that is it. <laughs> like, yes. 
like you were right on earlier when you were like, you're not wearing pants. Like, no, I walked into my goddamn house and just immediately stripped my pants. Liam, what are you wearing? Oh, man, Banana Republic t-shirt and a pair of uh, yoga shorts. Because, so here's the thing, is that girls, yoga pants, fantastic. There are actually uh, yoga pants or yoga shorts for men, and they're superbly comfortable. Didn't actually involve any yoga. Uh, <laughs> It's the sitting down word on the couch. Oh, but what we all want to know, Wes, is are you wearing the same shirt for the eighth episode in a row? I'm not, (laughs) but I almost wore it today and I didn't because I knew we were going to (laughs) record. It actually would have been perfect to wear today, uh, but with intention, I decided not to. (laughs) Um, But... Because of this, because I've talked to my dandy lady, she is ordering more of that style floral print so I can mm. have others and stop wearing the same exact one. So uh, score there. Uh, I went today, uh, by the time this airs, it'll be over, but I went to the Nordstrom anniversary sale. Oh, yeah. And I got myself a very sexy pair of Ted Baker uh, khaki pants. Um, they're khaki color. They're not actually khaki pants and they have all the amazing little details that i like from bonobos but they're not owned by walmart so i really i really really love them i think you're hating a walmart way too much but i understand i am a little bit i and we talked about this last time we'll we'll save it for a different episode because you're you're absolutely right and you're and uh i realized this when i was last hanging out with you i am hating on walmart too much and that's something i'm gonna work on um but these Ted Baker pants are amazing. I really like them. I'm wearing my white Lacostes. Uh, and then, uh, um, oh, who's making this shirt? I don't know. I can't see the tag. But it's a nice uh, print button down. Um, so kind of a, a classic blue and khaki and white shoe. So a, a good summer look. I am out here in Boston, and it is frightfully hot. Uh, I can only go outside for a short amount of time. But um, when I do, I look dandy. Mm. So I, I, you reminded me. So two things. After the shaving episode, I finally got myself a safety razor. Yeah. I, I used it for the first time yesterday and didn't die. So, <laughs> but you have been under the weather since. Is that what I, I mean? No, no, no. I was under the weather before that. And I thought, I thought, yeah, taking NyQuil and, and mucking around my face with blades, really, really bad combination. And um, <laughs> the – uh, the other thing is, is that music-wise, there is so oh, man. much cool there shit going so on in music rec- at the moment. Um, so I, I gotta, I gotta say, the Avenue Beat EP, the young ladies, very talented. So glad we got to see two of the four songs that they released on the EP live when we went to see mm-hmm. them in, in Nashville. Um, mm-hmm. That just made me smile. Um, switching way over the other side. Um, I've been I've been getting deep into Stevie Ray Vaughan, uh, and uh, and and that's that's been high on my playlists uh, for the past couple of weeks. Excellent choice, Mudcat. Oh, okay. What, what so music am, have you I been listening to? Four places right now. First of all, the singles from the upcoming High Women EP uh, have come out, and that is. Uh, Marin Morris, Brandy Carlisle, Amanda Shires, like a, a country female supergroup that, you know, their, their first single is uh, redesigning women. Um, we know we're going to have to do all of the work. 
Right. Um, so coming at this with this, you know, super progressive feminist message from the country music world. Very into that right now. They, I had like pre-downloaded the Avenue Beat EP, um, which like we're going to skew the shit out of their demographics, right? Like you understand like, their day one, they're going to be like, <laughs> yeah, we're, they're not going to be happy. They're yeah. like, Ooh, old white men are digging it, huh? Well, sales are through the roof. <laughs> exactly. Right. On the plus side, we can um, afford to buy the EP. Um, um, which I did. All weekend, Todd Snyder, who like a hero, a neighbor, like Todd Snyder's everything I've ever wanted to be, was put out a record probably three or four months ago, and the the Cash Cabin sessions that I'm coming back around on and just spending a lot of time with again. This is like my second or third like romance with this album, and then because they are coming to Nashville for their only show stop in the South, their only tour stop in the Southeast. Uh, and I managed to score tickets to every night of the show with a bunch of friends. Um, I've been into the hold steady uh, stuck between stations or, or boys and girls in America album. Um, and have just like listened to that probably 17 times in the last two weeks. I'm very excited about my music right now. My music's making me real happy. No, you, you've always had good taste. Well, for myself, uh, you know, I keep going back to a song that is by Trent Reznor and Dave Grohl, and I can't think of his name from Queens mm-hmm. of the Stone Age, the uh, bass player, singer, frontman. It was from a documentary that Dave Grohl did about a studio mixing console, and the song is called Mantra, and it's mostly a Trent Reznor uh, piece that uh, the other two are on, and it is just you know, seven minutes of heaven for me. Like it just builds and builds and builds. And, you know, I like my big arena, like just epic pieces. And it's just, it's great. But then, you know, you can, you can really only listen to that so many times. And then I'll go back to the pop that I love. Yeah. I like nineties pop. I've been hitting in sync pretty hard lately. I don't know how to end this episode now. I'm uh, going to just make a phone call. I think I feel really left out. I'm just going to call someone and start having a conversation while recording a podcast. Well, well, well the things was I had my phone on silent, like I always do, and I, I thought we were wrapping up, so I took it off silent. And <laughs> Emily is sending me text messages like going, I've had too much wine, you need to come and drive the Jeep back. And, and so it's just like going, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, so I, th- I think learning points for, from today's episode are, um, you know, become economically large enough to avoid uh, confrontation is, is a pretty solid rule in life, um, yes. as well as be nice and don't be a dick. I yeah. wholeheartedly endorse both of those. All right. Liam, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I'll see you tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> and uh, tip your waitresses, everyone, and um, – um, go fuck yourself, San Diego. 